a celebration of sex. <laughs> we uh, are about to start a few weeks of teaching about sex. Uh, why are we doing that? I was having this conversation with my mother-in-law. And she agreed with me that it was very important that we were doing it. We live in a highly sexualized culture, so we need to talk about sex in the church. And just as a warning, um, in order to make sure that we are real and grapple with the issues that face us today, we've determined on these Sunday mornings just to be open and name things as they are in our lives. Um, I hesitate to use the word explicit, We certainly won't have anything explicit on the screens. Um, But I just want you to know that, to be aware of that. And I'd like to pray. I'm concerned that there are two... uh, Well, there's just a whole number of extremes that we could unhelpfully go to. Not saying enough, saying too much. Being really straight down the line and leaving people condemned. Or being really understanding and open and giving license to all kind of immorality. So, can we pray? Father God, thank you that we're gathered here together in your presence this morning. And uh, we pray that you would have your way amongst us. Thank you for those words this morning about consecration and being like you. Holy Spirit, would you impart your holiness this morning in the words that I share and Catherine shares to and in our thinking come and shape us and form us in the image of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, It's been pointed out to me already that this image is perhaps a little bit cheesy. I have to say I was very cautious about spending any length of time searching the internet for images (laughs) to go with my talk this morning. So if any of the images seem a little bit like they could have been better, that's the reason why. Um, There is a handout on a little wooden table by the door there, which is a list of half a dozen or so books on different aspects of this part of our lives, which I'd encourage you to pick up and uh, and get hold of to read alongside this series. Uh, My parents were going to be visiting us as a family today until I told my mum the subject on which I'd be preaching. Um, They decided they'd come another time. I remember at the age of 14 or 15 being sat at the dinner table, and I don't know what it was that prompted me to say it, but I said something like, no, I remember exactly what I said, it was, I really don't think sex can be all that it's cracked up to be. To which my parents both said, well, naturally, it's very good. <laughs> and, uh, and indeed, sex is good. God created people as sexual beings, created us to be sexual because while we've got this subject for this, the title for the series as a whole is a celebration of sex, often the church has had uh, a reputation, a deserved reputation for just brushing things under the carpet and treating what's actually an important part of our humanity as if it's just dirty and rubbish. And we really want to overcome that. In Song of Songs, the lover and the beloved say this to each other. The lover says, how beautiful you are. And how pleasing, O love, with your delights. For your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of its fruit. 
May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And the beloved replies, May the wine go straight to my lover, flowing gently over lips and teeth. I belong to my lover, and his desire is for me. Come, my lover, let us go, my lover. That's how I want to say that. (laughs) Come, my lover. Sorry. It's just, the next bit says, let us go into the countryside. (laughs) So, that's why. But that's not fair. (laughs) Let us spend the night in the villages. I want to keep going. Let us us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if the blossoms have opened, if the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. So... The Bible's pretty upfront about sex being a good thing. Uh, So where do we begin? Where do we begin to think about sex? Because, of course, the reality is that different people have had very, very different experiences of sex and of sexuality. Uh, You may be someone who has a very high level of sexual desire or maybe rather less. You may already in life have found sex to be great, or to be painful. You may have been abused, or may have forced yourself on someone. You may have been promiscuous or remain a virgin. You may be attracted to men or women, or both. Or maybe even frightened that your desire seems to know no bounds and has attached itself to things that you are astonished to find yourself attracted to. You may be absorbed in a fantasy world, like the 60-year-old who confessed to her hairdresser that she was in love with Edward Cullen, who's the vampire in the Twilight series, for those of you who don't know. Anyway, there we go. So, there's all kinds of different experiences, all kinds of different challenges, and so, how can we start to think together about sex. Well, I'm going to suggest to you that three different ways that not just Christians, but that everybody has the opportunity to think about sex. And the first of these is really to do with thinking of ourselves. This picture of Frank Sinatra, his famous song, I Did It My Way. And thinking about ourselves in the area of ethics is what philosophers or ethicists would call hedonism, thinking about how to satisfy myself, how to satisfy my own pleasures. That's one way of thinking about sex. The problem, of course, is that not all of our desires are right. What if I find that I really, really, really want to visit a brothel? And pleasing ourselves as way of thinking about sex can also be, it can be very self-destructive and lead to all kinds of problems. And so just thinking of ourselves clearly won't do. Uh, it's selfish, for one. And actually, it's more animal-like than God-like. It won't do just to think of ourselves. That's another thing that we can do is to think of other people. I'll explain the picture in just a moment. The philosophers would call this utilitarianism, a bit of a mouthful. And what that is all about 
is trying to choose the things that will lead to the most happiness for most people. Looking at all of the options that are available and trying to work out which will do the most good. Thinking of other people. In the area of sexual ethics, one way that we might have seen that clearly expressed in history is where a prince and princess, royalty from different nations, would marry for the sake of bringing peace to the lands. I mean, whether or not they liked each other, whether or not they wanted to have sex, there was an expectation that they would together produce offspring that would unite lands. And that makes sense within this way of looking at sex. Not about what I want, but thinking of the good of our society, thinking about the good of others. Of course, there are a number of problems with this way of looking at sex too. There are many, many actions which make some people happy and others sad at precisely the same time. And it's impossible to weigh the balance. We also are unable to predict all of the consequences of our choices. Things that we intend for good often end up harming others. And also, in terms of making other people happy, because of what we're like as people, sometimes there are people who are made happy by things that are wrong. And other people who delight in evil. So it's very difficult to make ethical decisions on the basis of what's going to help the most people. Sometimes it's clear, but often it's not. And as is often the case, if we look at an unusual example, sometimes it can clarify the issues for us. So this is an example from a book in the 60s, a famous Christian book uh, that, that sought to bring the church's morality in line with the ethics of its day. Anyway, the story is this. It comes from Fletcher's book, Situation Ethics, and it says, in Ukraine, there was a Mrs. Bergmeier, a prisoner of war, and she found out through a sympathetic commandant that her husband and family were trying to keep together and were trying to find her. But the rules allowed them only to release her back to Germany if she was pregnant, because then she would be a liability to the camp. So she turned things over in her mind and finally asked a friendly German camp guard to impregnate her, which he did. Her condition being medically verified, she was sent back to Berlin and to her family. They welcomed her with open arms, even when she told them how she'd managed it. And when the child was born, they all loved him because of what he'd done for them. After the christening, they met up with their local pastor and discussed the morality of the situation, which was perhaps a little late. I hope it's clear to you that we cannot allow the hoped-for ends 
to justify any means. Moreover, these questions I raise about this approach to ethics, we can't always know what the consequences will be. What if the woman had died in childbirth? What if her family had not welcomed her back with open arms? What if many years down the line, the child that she brought home brought harm to the family? So, just thinking of others is also no good. We need something else. We need some further guidance and help. And of course, the third approach is to think of God and what he wants, what he wishes. We could call that moral principle. If we think of God, we'll ask a very different question to what satisfies me or what's going to work. The question that comes to mind when we think of God is what will please him? Not what will please me or what will please others, but what will please him? It's a very, very different question. And of course, some people will say, that's a rubbish question. That's no good either, because it will leave some people unhappy. If we put the question of our human happiness below the question of what pleases God, doesn't that mean that some people will inevitably end up unhappy? Jesus taught that there are two commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And of those, he named the first as loving God. Of course, the command to love God doesn't stand in isolation. He also says to love our neighbor as ourselves. There's love of others around us and love of ourselves, accepting that we are of value and actually to enjoy the life that God's given us is a good thing. It's all there. When it comes to establishing an order of priority, we love others, John says in his first letter, we love others because God first loved us. Our our love relationship with God takes priority. It's more substantial. We love others because God loves us and loves them too. We can love ourselves because the God who created us and who rules the entire universe looks upon us and he calls us his beloved. The best possible reason that we could ever have for loving ourselves, that God loves us. It doesn't work the other way around. It doesn't work to say if we prioritize loving each other, then love for God will arise from that. It doesn't work that way around. Jesus says the first commandment, the first commandment is to love God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Of course, when we look at these three different approaches to sexuality, sexual ethics, people who don't think of God, for whom God is just not relevant to life, who don't know him, who don't desire to please him, will naturally, very understandably, make 
ethical judgments on the basis of those first two things, thinking of myself and thinking of other people. And obviously the, the main way that people will talk about making decisions around sexuality in our culture goes like this. What people choose to do in private is up to them as long as it doesn't harm anyone. So it's taking thinking of myself first and then thinking about other people. So what I think I want to do for myself is the driver behind what I would opt for, but then that might be curtailed, perhaps, if it's going to affect other people too much. I'm sure you'll agree that that's how decisions are made in our society. But for us as Christians, there is a call, it's put very simply in the first letter to the Thessalonians, to live in order to please God. And I've deliberately laid things out this way uh, to clarify that these are different. And it's, let me underline, it's true that in following Jesus and in living a life to please him, there's all kinds of delight that comes our way. And there's all kind of good that is achieved as well as we set our sights on pleasing God. But we don't do it in order to gain the delight. And we don't do it because we can see all all the consequences and how it will work out. There's something much simpler, more straightforward about putting God first and thinking about what he wants. It might mean that we're left sometimes wishing for something slightly different to what we've got. It might sometimes meaning we make choices that others around us don't understand or even find objectionable. Father God, as you've spoken to us this morning in our worship about being consecrated... And as we've taken time already to to say yes, Lord, I pray that that yes would extend into the area of our sexuality, sexual desire and relationships, that you'd help us to honour you, to trust you, that your ways are right. As we continue to look at this, would you just, again, send your spirit, we pray. Help us to understand your way of thinking. Help us to understand what pleases you and why it does. And may our hearts beat as your heart beats. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm going to hand over to Catherine. Uh, having said that there are three ways of thinking about sex, the scriptures teach us that there are two ways of relating to sex. First of these is about singleness, and I thought it was better if I didn't speak to that. Hi. Oh, my goodness. Um, I think I'm the first person to use this amazing contraption. I feel like Jesse J. <laughs> But I won't sing, don't worry. (laughs) Um, Yeah, a bit of a disclaimer to start with. Um, 
I just wanted to say, I'm not standing here representing all the single people in this room. I couldn't possibly do that. We're all individuals. We all have different experiences. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just talking from my heart, and I hope that it will um, resound with, with you in some way. Also, I'm not talking about singleness. Um, we could be here all day <laughs> if I talked to you about the issues of being single. Um, I'm talking specifically about single celibacy. Um, and then a third thing I just wanted to say is I just want you to think while I'm talking, just imagine yourself in the presence of God in front of Jesus, his wonderful love, and fix your eyes on him because he might have something to say to you no matter what your situation is this morning. Um, So just bear that in mind as well. So my story is I'm 38 years old. Um, And apart from a very short relationship in my early 20s that only lasted a few months, I have and remain single and celibate. Um, But if you knew me when I was 12, you you would never have said that about my life. You would never have said that that would be the case. I was absolutely, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family. Um, I had three older siblings who all got married age 21-ish. So um, this was my dream. I just wanted a family, wanted to be a mummy, um, didn't want a career and all that scary stuff. <laughs> Never thought that I would be independent. So um, you know, I was one of those teenage girls that wanted to hang around boys all the time. Um, and I wanted six kids, and I told everybody this frequently. <laughs> those of you with kids are saying, no, you didn't. <laughs> also, when I was 17, I don't know why God did this, but um, a really um, renowned pre- uh, prophet amongst um, Salt and Light churches prophesied over me and the end of that prophecy was all about what I would do with my husband so there I am 17 yeah because I'm going to get married in a few years time and um, this is all that I'm going to do with my husband Um, parallel to this though when I was about 11 years old thanks to Keith and Eileen Elmett I was in a youth meeting and they had encouraged us to think and pray about what God wanted us to do for him. And I had a really clear picture that, that spoke to me about going into the field of nursing um, and just really felt strongly that's what I wanted to do. So that gave me focus as well. So God's really gracious. And thank you, Keith and Eileen. Um, you are an example of unselfish people that even with a family, you didn't just raise your family. You raised a whole load of family. So thank you. Um, Where was I? So yeah, so in my 20s, every single um, youth meeting, church event, camp, for me was, when am I going to meet my husband? Um, I had a nagging fear in the back of my head that I would remain single. 
when I was a child, I looked at and admired a lot of single women in our church who were older. And I did admire them, but they also scared me. To me, I couldn't imagine that. I couldn't imagine that you could, you could do that. It was too much to bear for me. But that just showed how naive and narrow a view I had, really, of life and God's purposes and what we're here for. Um, The idea that marriage is the goal, the saviour, everything will be okay once I get married. Um, I had a lot to learn. (laughs) And God has been so gracious to me in the waiting. So... So the challenges um, have been two main challenges, I would say, and that's dealing with the strong desire to be loved and accepted and have intimacy. Um, The longing in my heart has always been really deep. Um, I've had various prayer partners, prayer triplets in the past. They've all got married and then I've gone to another one. Um, I had a friend, a really good friend in Vancouver who's now married and we used to pray together and um, she even said to me one day, Catherine, this goes really deep with you, like it's more than normal. Um, there's a deep desire in your heart for, for this love and, ex- and yeah, for intimacy. Um, so what do you do with that? Well, you just have to give it to God. And, and it sounds simple, but I hope that I can sort of unravel a bit about what that means. Um, because he does understand our challenges. Um, so that, the, and the, yeah, maybe I won't say that. We already know the challenges of our culture. <laughs> um, working in the workplace, um, the media, the television, everything's all telling us that um, how can you possibly live? It's, it's part of your life. How can you possibly live without it? Proverbs is full of wisdom of, of how to handle these things um, in a godly way. Um, I'm just going to change the order a little bit. So that was one of the challenges. And then the other challenge is um, the expectations of people around us and of ourselves as well. Um, I heard a really good speaker um, from Bethel called William Matthews, and he had a a few little nuggets or things to say, which I wrote down. Um, One of them, he said, there's always got to be a balance between longing and fulfillment. We were made to long. We were made to desire. Um, in, in Psalms, it says, you have the desires of my heart. You give me the desires of my heart. But what is that desire, and where does that desire go? Um, shouldn't it go back to God? <laughs> the desire, isn't it a desire for him, ultimately? Isn't it a desire for his intimacy? Um, one of the things that I used to do, um, and I'm about to do another one, is I used to go on romantic weekends away with God. It's like, why should I wait till I meet somebody before I can go and stay in a nice hotel and do something nice? So the first time I did this was in my early 20s, and I went to Toronto, and I stayed in a four-star hotel. 
I had breakfast in bed with God. Um, it was great. It was really, really lovely. And I really felt God bless me deeply in, in that place. Um, it, was, it was a great place. And I would encourage all of you to do that sort of thing. God desires our presence. He, he, he wants relationship with us. He loves us. So if you're married or single, please learn how to, how to be intimate with God, how to soak in his presence, how to be dependent on him and um, not on anyone else, not on your husband, not on your wife, not on uh, your friends, not on anybody but God. Um, so now I'm completely lost with my notes. <laughs> yeah. Psalm 27 has been one of my favorites. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. Yeah. We're God's co-workers. We're, we're supposed to live our lives with him and for him. Because that's where you find true acceptance, true intimacy, and, and true hope. Jesus must have demonstrated this. Because he had women who followed him, who poured out their lives for him. They experienced something of God's acceptance that they wouldn't ever get anywhere else. Think about um, Mary who um, cracked open a bottle of perfume that was really costly at his feet. Um, That's how accepted she felt. That was her worship back to God. And if I can... If all I all my life is about is pouring my pouring myself out to God, then that's enough. I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> oh dear. So yeah, what have I learnt? I've learnt to seek right attention, and I don't know if there's any girls in your teens in this room. <laughs> But yes, it's great to look nice, but do it for the right reasons. Don't seek, don't seek the wrong attention. Um, another thing I was going to say is I'm very blessed with parents, my dad's in this room, <laughs> like I've got, um, who have encouraged me um, and, and just been great friends, actually, through this walk. But if you're a, a teenager, young person in this room, talk to your parents about stuff, about what's happening in your life, about every aspect of your life. If you don't have parents that can do that for you, um, you know, talk to people that you trust um, in, you know, whoever that is. Um, be open, you know. It's really, really important. It's so easy to be embarrassed and think that you can't say things. But um, it's so important that everything is, is brought out into the light, that you're not hiding anything. 
and um, it's okay, your parents will understand. <laughs> I used to think that my parents wouldn't, wouldn't have heard of some things, so I better not talk to them about it because <laughs> they would be embarrassed. But no, you know, talk to people that are wiser than you about stuff and let's, let's keep it in the open. Read the Proverbs. Um, understanding my worth in Jesus and why he is all that I need. I'm actually glad, and I never thought I'd do that, I'm actually glad that I have remained single to learn these things. Um, fairly unconfident as a person in my early 20s. I wasn't mature enough to cope with being married. Um, I wouldn't have grown in the way that I've grown as an individual, and I wouldn't have the relationship I have with God, I don't think, if that had happened. Another thing is... I know that God is not mean. <laughs> so often we think God is rubbing our faces in it. You know, why? You know, I'm, there's millions of people having babies all around me. Um, there's people getting married all the time. I've been to so many weddings, you know. And God, but, but don't think like that. Why, why would God, God is not mean? He isn't. Do, he isn't doing that. He is faithful. It's because he sees a bigger picture. It's because he sees, he sees everything and he knows what is best for us. Um, sometimes maybe when Lily wants to do something that um, she can't understand why she can't do it, but you just know that wouldn't be the best thing for her. That's what God is like. Um, again, some of you might not have had good fathers, but... Um, Father God is, is, a, is an amazing father, and, and he, he loves you, and he absolutely does want what's best for you. Um, you need to believe it. Um, psalm 62, I love this psalm, so I've actually put my marker in it. Um, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I shall never be shaken. And verse 11 says, One thing God has spoken, two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. Surely you will reward each person according to what he has done. He's, he's worth following. He's worth giving your whole life for, to be honest. He's worth laying down every... Um, desire that you've ever had at his feet and pouring it out. And, and another thing is you can't hide away. You've, you've got to resolve these issues. Don't hide away, maybe even going on a mission trip. You know, I'm not, hear me right here. Some t- we've got to resolve these issues in our hearts. Um, because it's, it's so important, and then God will use us more powerfully. Is this possible even if you've fallen or been abused or broken sexually? Yes, this is true for everyone. Um, I thought Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, but when I was looking this up, I'm not sure. Not anymore, but she had seven demons. We don't know what those demons were, and God cast them out of her. She was a broken woman, and yet she was so precious to God 
that she, was, she got to be the first one to see him when he rose again. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, okay, I'm jumping all over the place here, but I think, how, am I doing all right for time? Yeah, I was going to touch on what Paul said about being single. He was talking to the church in Corinth where um, they were having, the society were, were having difficulties in the area of sex. Um, and Paul says that singleness is actually a better way to live um, because then you can um, live in a right way in undivided devotion to God. So I think I'll just finish with some top tips. Can I have Mother Teresa's slide, please? Do I need to do this? Oh, yeah. Okay, so top tips are don't isolate yourself, push into people, push into families, stop feeling sorry for yourself, and, you know, and, and live as part of God's bigger family. Um, I really like Mother Teresa's book, A Simple Path. Um, It's full of wisdom. And um, something I've learned over the years is to avoid Um, self-pity. It's just not the place to go. It will do you absolutely no good whatsoever. Um, So I, I, I won't go through all of these things, but this just speaks for itself. But if in your roots... Um, can you go to the is the the next one so if if you if you dwell in self pity if you 're carrying guilt um, jealousy insecurity, then you know we can just see the fruit of all of those things that can happen and then if we go back to if our root if we 're rooted down into the good things um, then the fruit that we will get will be great, will be good. It is possible. It really, really is possible with God. Um, Another top tip is to guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. And trust that God is the one that helps us. Pray to him to deliver you from evil. It's the Lord's Prayer that we, we need to pray daily to help us through situations. And he absolutely does. I've seen him... Um, in situations in the workplace and in social events where God has absolutely given me an open door out. Um, and, and he does do that. Um, and trust that God is your everything. Can I just read a little poem that I've written to end? Um, and then I do have a couple of prophetic words, but maybe I could bring those at the end. Whatever you want to do. Um, so... As I stand here today, a whole woman with peace and dignity, you have my heart, Lord. I am a broken vessel before you. You draw me closer, deep calls to deep. Intimacy, Lord Jesus. Pure acceptance, total approval. When I let you into the deep in my heart, There I find love, and I no longer feel in want, but loved. You are enough.
Brilliant. Thank you. So, two ways of relating to sex. One is celibate singleness. The other is uh, faithful marriage. In a few weeks' time, we'll talk about the issue of gay marriage. Uh, For now, it suffice to say that the scriptures do define marriage as being between a man and a woman, and as the God-given context for a sexual relationship. We're going to read from Genesis 1, right at the beginning of the scriptures, where there's a, uh, it lays out for us why God created, how he created, and what he was aiming for. Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And in the second creation account, after God has made woman, he brought her to the man, and the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Uh, sex is not all about children. It's partly about children, and God knows that children are best brought up within a covenant of marriage by their own parents. But sex is not only about that. Sex is also meant to be nice and fun. Or as the marriage service puts it rather more solemnly, we pray that people would be strengthened by their physical union. It sounds to me like it, sometimes like it could be a three-legged race or for many married Christians the experience of enjoying sex in marriage doesn't come easily having spent years perhaps as single people working hard not to act on sexual desires the experience of enjoying sex doesn't necessarily come easy for some sex is painful or distasteful Or maybe just a little bit less enjoyable when your husband's put on 20 pounds, as often happens to newlywed men. And so sex just feels like a hassle. At the same time, we live in a highly sexualized culture. Mainstream TV has just so much sex going on. You watch Strictly Come Dancing or X Factor, and the singers are commended for being sexy. Fifty Shades of Grey, the book has brought certain sexual practices from the deviant fringe into the mainstream. And so Christians now are prompted to ask questions that perhaps they once did not, like whether tying up your spouse is a way to have a better sex life. And would it not be helpful to watch pornography together? Is mutual masturbation a good alternative to penetrative sex? Anyway, what body part is it okay to penetrate? 
or to use to penetrate with. Talking to my mother-in-law. And we were agreeing that these questions didn't demand any Sunday preaching 25 years ago. But they're there now. And we need to speak of them. So we really face two equally unhelpful extremes. Either seeing sex as negative, which is not true biblically, or entering on the quest for the most intense physical sensations. Equally unhelpful. Now, the Bible does not give us guidelines about what forms of massage are good, about sex toys or oral sex. It doesn't give answers to those questions. Actually, they are matters for each married couple to discuss with a healthy respect for each other, not forcing the fulfilment of their desires on each other, but equally seeking to serve each other where they can. The key to good sex in marriage is to understand that it's relational, that the physical takes place in the context of relationship. Good sex involves talking and learning about each other rather than assuming. I've heard from a number of witnesses that the best sex came in their marriage after they'd been married for 20 years. Because it was then that they knew best how to please each other and then that they trusted each other enough to do it. Somehow that key aspect of sex doesn't get portrayed well on telly. I am praying, and some of you, you know, you'll like this prayer. I'm praying that the fruit of this little sermon series will be that every married couple in OCC has a better sex life. I really am. I mean, God bless you. I'm going to finish this morning by saying there are three, we've looked at three different ways of thinking about sex, two different ways of relating to sex, and finally, one way to be. So this applies equally to all of us. Whatever our situation, whether newlywed, unmarried, widowed, married to someone with whom sex is difficult, married to a person whose sex drive is very different to your own, or perhaps more simply, faced with good mates who bring the porn out to watch together and expect you to join in, talking at work to girlfriends who are enjoying an affair. In all of those diverse circumstances that we face, there is one common internal challenge, which is a lustful desire to take what is off-limits to us. For whatever reason, it's off-limits. None of us are free from the desire to take what is off-limits to us. This challenge has got some internal aspects and some external aspects. And uh, picking up on what Catherine was saying, or putting it slightly differently, many of us can think that the challenge is especially hard for us because of our particular circumstances. And that if our circumstances changed 
then things would be okay. But we can't, we can't blame our circumstances for what's going on inside us. Even when circumstances seem perfect, we will still find that there is an internal issue. Uh, someone who regularly has great sex with a gorgeous spouse can find that it doesn't actually free them from adulterous desires, but actually stimulates them to think more sexually about other people. If you're waiting for that to solve your internal issues, you may be disappointed. Equally, at another extreme, hermits have sought solitude to escape carnal temptations and found that However they got away from other people, they carried with them an impure heart and were assailed by as many lustful thoughts as ever. You might think that old age will reduce your sexual desire, but there's a reason why we have the phrase dirty old man. So rather than waiting for circumstances to bring our sexuality into order for us, we need to recognize that self-control is a virtue that can grow in us all. Without self-control, we will always be vulnerable to sexual sin. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy and says, you have received, thank you, you have received a spirit of love and power, and self-discipline, it says in the NIV. It's self-control. Self-control is the fruit of the Spirit's work in our lives. And it means that instead of our sexual desire being in the driving seat, it's in the passenger seat of our lives. We need to be careful when we talk about our sex drive which can easily justify us just doing what we feel like doing because having the feeling was enough to override every other concern. We have sexual desire, but it need not drive us. It's part of our lives, but a better place to see it is in the passenger seat. When we realise... This may not take very long for most of us. But when we realize that we lack self-control, our first need is not to try harder, but to pray. There's a cycle that goes on that goes sin, guilt, emptiness, distance from God, and oh, look, Surprisingly enough, more sin. And so we go round and round and round. We need not just to try harder, but in our brokenness to pray, to confess to God the reality of what's going on for us, because he's not surprised in any case. And instead of a cycle of sin, guilt, emptiness, and distance from God and more sin we need to rebound quickly into forgiveness and fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. As I said, we're going to look at other subjects 
over the coming weeks, and I believe that by the time we've done this all together, we are going to be changed in all kinds of brilliant ways. Uh, Those will be very diverse ways, I'm sure, for different people. This morning is not about achieving everything. It's about clearing the ground. word of consecration and of following Christ, the crucified Christ. This morning is about clearing the ground and putting in a good foundation. There will be other things to build in the weeks ahead, but this morning is about clearing the ground and putting in a good foundation. I'd like to suggest a few responses that we ought to embrace this morning. Believe. What do we need to believe? Can I suggest to you, we need to believe that God will bring our sexuality into line with one of two ideals, either a celibate singleness or a faithful marriage. We need to trust that God will do that. And actually, for a number of people this morning, that is a belief that you've stretched out for and held on to at times, but experience has dragged it out of your fingers. And it seemed like that was a naive thing to believe. This morning, God wants to invite us again to trust him and to believe that he will work to transform us from glory to glory and to bring our sexuality into line with what pleases him. It's his work in us. Fairly deep issue of trust in God right there for a whole number of people. I think we need... So, as I say, you know, we ought to believe. I'm not suggesting for a moment that anyone should just say, oh, all right then, you know, I've had this 20-year struggle, but righty-hey, as if it's a small... I, I understand it's a deep thing, but I also believe the word of God when he says that he will transform us from glory to glory. And I've been praying that God would give a fresh gift of faith this morning to believe him. We need to believe. We also need to confess. Uh, Not publicly to everyone. Uh, There is something about confessing to God in our own prayer. There's something very, very, very powerful about confessing our sins to another as well. Uh, You may, as soon as I say that, some of you say, yeah, I know who I can talk to. We operate a system of personal pastoring in the church, so everyone who wants it has got a personal pastor you may have someone you know i know who i can talk to that simple if you don't have somebody that you can talk to i'd like to encourage you uh, that we would help to find a for you to help find a relationship within the church where you could talk about things possibly not on your first meeting in costa coffee wherever it may be but we would we're committed to providing this kind of trustworthy relationship where you don't have to struggle by yourself with the accusing thoughts that if only everybody else knew the reality of your life, they wouldn't want to be with you anymore because you can get it into the open and life can change for you. Also, thirdly, to receive afresh this morning that spirit of love and power and self-discipline. I really, really, really do not want to communicate. And I... I hope I can make this as clear as possible that we can change these deep aspects of desire in us by some kind of three-point plan and strength of will alone. 
It's a work of God in us. And it's right for us to acknowledge the things that we understand. It's right for us to make choices as well as we can. But the fundamental transformation that we need is a work of the Spirit. And we need to invite him to come and do that in us. I'm going to hand over to Keith, who's going to bring things into land this morning.